Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio News. Uh, tonight, I'm also joined by Aaron Moritz, also known as uh, the maker of Capitalism Epic Fail. Uh, in addition to Frankly So of the Sideshow, uh, we're going to be analyzing some current events uh, and kind of given a zeitgeist movement and activist-oriented spin, so to speak. Um, Today, I'm uh, going to be also kind of talking a little bit about some of the things we went over last time. I want to say, first of all, I'm sorry that I had to delete the last episode, but when I listened to the recording, it was really bad. It wasn't just crackly. It was, uh, like, literally clipping. Like, it would, it would like, merge words together and make it sound like I said something totally wrong. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. This episode's going to have to go. So anyway, um, I'm going to be covering some of the ground that I did in that one, and we're going to have um, Aaron Stormclouds Gathering Aaron on to talk further about the Natural Rights Foundation in a different episode. Um, also, uh, you guys might remember in a recent news show, I reported on free and equal uh, debates that are coming up, and um, that was between third-party candidates, uh, Constitution Party, Libertarian Party, Green Party, and um all you know and uh justice party you guys might remember rocky um anderson he was on a previous episode of v radio and it was a fun review um so anyway um i guess there are people are saying that the sound is still bad that's really messed up i guess we'll continue to do the to see where it goes from there. I don't know what the deal is, but now that it's happened in two different shows, I'm definitely going to have to talk to Block Talk about it. So, um, In the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and finish here for those of you who are listening. We'll see how bad it is when we record it. But um, In any case, uh, today we will be talking about a few different articles. One I want to start with is actually about... Oh, this, <laughs> I got interrupted and didn't finish my point. Uh, the free and equal debate will be broadcasted on Al Jazeera. Uh, so, in other words, the Arabic uh, um, comp- basically uh, media company Al Jazeera will also be broadcasting our, our the free and equal uh, debate. It will be streaming live on the internet as well at freeandequal.org, I believe. Um, you should check this out. It'll be interesting to see a debate of third-party candidates. You know, I've told a lot of people. You know, if if you're going to vote anyway, or you know maybe you don't care about what you vote for, consider a third-party candidate. Um, even if nothing else, it'll be interesting to see some of the issues that get exposed by some of these third-party candidates that other candidates are not talking about. So, anyway. it's pretty sad that uh, you have to um, go to a station that's based outside of the country to get uh, this kind of uh, open debate from candidates who aren't the mainstream. <laughs> That's a very interesting point, and you're absolutely right. And it is kind of sad when you think about it. Um, so, first of all, uh, Frank, do you have any kind of commentary on that? Yeah, I did. Uh, and I just need to recollect my thoughts because um, I got lost for a moment. I was thinking about the noise that you had mentioned just before we started the show, and I was wondering if I had gotten that corrected. Uh, for the most part, there's, it just sounds like there's like an ambient noise in the background, and I heard something crash or hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, my mic muted. I don't know why you would have it's, heard that. It's not important, though. Go ahead. All right. 
Yeah. No, I I, I don't remember what my point was. Uh, and honestly, I don't really remember exactly what I'm saying. There was something about the debate uh, and, and third parties. Yeah, oh, there's yeah. uh, third-party thinking, candidates that are going to be right. in the debate. Slightly off-topic, but um, still on-topic is the fact that a lot of people have been worried about whether or not they should vote. And I think, yeah, people should vote because at the very least, it really doesn't matter that you're only stuck with one or two people, uh, even if you're limited, if, if you're unable to do a write-in vote in your state. It's still important to get out and vote because you're sending a message with that with every vote you're saying hey it's still my country and i want to have a say in it damn it well i usually tell people who are affiliated party to various aspects of the venus project and the zeiss movement and um vote for the ideas you know, the if nothing else, it lends credence to those ideas, yeah. as it you know, and therefore, right, kind of like Obama. You know, Obama ran on this uh, radical change platform mm-hmm. in his uh, in his uh, run, and and he got elected based on his promises and his rhetoric. Mm-hmm. He didn't follow through in, on any of it, but. What people were voting for in that instance was the rhetoric, not necessarily that they believed he was the man who could actually get it done. Right. So, in any case, um, first article we're going to be reviewing today comes from Alternet, uh, and it's written by Matt Stoller. Uh, Walmart, the most powerful company in the world, admits that protests and strikes lead to wage increases. Workers threatened to walk out on Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. Speed bump in Walmart's race to the bottom. October 14, 2012, for the first time ever, a strike is taking place in America aimed at the most powerful company in the economy, Walmart. Workers at Walmart stores across the country, as Joss Edelson reports, are threatening to walk out on Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. These labor actions are coming on top of earlier labor actions at Walmart's warehouse contractors linked to non-payment of overtime, uh, non-payment for all hours worked, and even pay less than the minimum wage. The possible strike could be very significant because the target of the strike is the most important driver of the race to the bottom economy. Walmart is a massive. Uh, the company is the largest private employer in the United States with more than 2 million employees. The average American household spends three thousand five hundred dollars at Walmart in two thousand six, or, or I'm sorry, and in two thousand six, the company alone represented two point three percent of the American GDP. The company is so powerful that when a Walmart supercenter enters into your community, the entire community's obesity rate increases. It also, as a new American scholar Barry Lynn has argued, in End of the Line, a force that has reshaped the American corporate world. Though known for suppressing wages, I found evidence that the company is willing to change working digit conditions with sufficient pressure. According to St. Louis Federal Reserve President William Poole, the last time there was significant labor unrest at Walmart in 2006, the company raised wages at, seven, uh, at 700 stores. Poole, like many at the Fed, regularly spoke with Walmart executives, and they gave him unvarnished views about their business practices because they believed, as did Poole, that the information would be used solely for the macroeconomic forecasting. On March 27, 28, 2006, Poole said that his Walmart contact told him the company would not raise wages and was planning on moving their workforce increasingly towards part-time employment. 
Apple was interested in this because of its bearing on inflation. Quote, wages, he said, and these are for hourly workers, are absolutely flat. No increase whatsoever in the last year, and no increase planned going forward. Pool continued, about 20% of their associates are part-time, and they are going to be increasing that share to 40% so they can staff at peak times and get more produ- productivity out of their workforce. It's like the part of the quote. Just two minutes later, Pool offered some very different and shocking news. My Walmart contact also said that Walmart is in the process of raising starting wages in about 700 stores. This is the first time in eight years of talking with him that I've heard any comment like that. He said that some of the raises are part of the Walmart, I'll call it social political agenda, because all of of the controversy about Walmart. The FMOC transcripts are close, are as close as we're going to get to internal corporate dialogue about discovery or leaks. The reason I found this information is because Walmart has become significant has become a significant presence at the Fed. Forecasters at the key federal open market committee meetings increasingly rely on what the retailer tells them about the economy. Now FOMOC transcripts aren't released for at least five years, so we don't know whether this strike is registering with those high-level policymakers. But the last time there was a far less aggressive union-backed attack on Walmart's business practices, it did. As for the strike, it is potentially one of the biggest stories of the year, a genuine challenge to the current economic order. Walmart has set the tone for the global economy, becoming a massive trading empire in the order of the British East Indies Trading Company. Walmart has, as new American scholar Barry Lynn argued in End of the Line, reshaped the American corporate world. The key to Walmart's dominance is the way that it electronically tracks all of its merchandise through an enormously efficient supply chain. The data Walmart has about who buys that or what and when is incredibly valuable to manufacturers. Beyond that, the size of Walmart, eight cents of every dollar spent on retail in the U.S. goes through the company, meaning that selling at a scale in the U.S. means through selling through Walmart. In order to sell there, though, Walmart walks through your company and dictates how you are to manufacture, price, and package your product. Now, I want to pause real quick in this article just to bring something up. You know, I'm going to reread this issue. Okay, this one part was one part of this. Uh, that the key to Walmart's dominance is the way that it electronically tracks all of its merchandise through an enormously efficient supply chain. The data that Walmart has about who buys what and when is incredibly valuable to manufacturers. Now, I'm going to ask you, Aaron, um, do you understand why I repeated that? Does, does it occur to you? Oh, yeah, sure, because um, that's exactly the kind of information that we talk about needing to uh, collect in a resource-based economy. You just take information of who's buying what and when and use that to manufacture the products, and um, I think that's why anyway. No, you're absolutely right, and it's a very key point to this discussion, especially when we talk about the supposed economic calculation problem is that these massive mega corporations are already basically solving the economic calculation problem you know just through the the massive networked computers and and other information that just was not available to any company at the time that Ludwig von Mises penned his theory um and so the fact you know and Peter Joseph for example has pointed out in the past that there are many companies all over the world that are already engaged in that level of data collection, you know, and essentially, you know, Walmart, you know, gathers all the information from all the consumers, you know, tabulates it, and then sends it out to the manufacturers. And as a result, 
has become one of the more efficient distributors on the planet. Unfortunately, they're all linked to all kinds of other human rights violations, but still, you know, that, you know, that essentially one of the biggest capitalist organizations on the planet, Walmart, is already utilizing technology that could be utilized. First of all, there's no economic housing problem. And second of all, um, could just easily be able to, you know, facilitate a resource-based company. So, do you have anything to add to that, Frank? Yeah, I did. Uh, it, it also kind of points to how uh, a lot of times your worst enemy, and I kind of put that in quotation marks, uh, or, or I bracket that, you know, worst enemy thing, uh, because... Uh, Think of uh, Stormcloud Saturn for one. He was a staunch uh, critic of the Zeitgeist movement for a while there, and now he's probably one of our best advocates. Um, and, and I think it's partly because he had seen a side of the coin that few others do, and that's what you run into with the Walmart. You get a side of the coin that few others do. The, the mechanism that drives them to gather this information is uh, is part of the system that's not really working, but it still goes to prove the point, you know, to uh, prove the concept, you know, uh, proof of theory that man have a system that needs to people without having to worry about Well, the fact that also that, as they pointed it out, you know, that's the economic problem that they keep talking about, that supposedly we're not going to be able to make, you know, basically gather the data and then tabulate the data based, you know, on the resources available, that supposedly that can happen without a price mechanism and all that they say, but it's already being done. And that's one of the reasons why I tell people, like, this argument came up quite a bit on Stormcloud Gathering's recent video, um, talking about what his problems with anarcho-capitalism and Stefan Molyneux, um, he had, you know, in the comments section, of course, you know, the ANCAPs came out of the work to do what they always do when somebody's talking about them and, um, you know, to defend their point of view. And this argument came a lot and their discussions about, no, you have this economic calculation problem, you know, and it's it's all based on what I told them again. You're, you're, you're dealing in outdated ideas, you know, that were never established as fact, even when they were established. The economic calculation problem is a theory. In the Miesian Austrian school of economics, not even accepted as a mainstream school of economics. You know, so it's important just to think about this for a minute and put it into perspective that if Walmart can do it for profit, there's no reason why we couldn't do it not for profit and probably better. So Well one of the one of the things to pay attention to in that is that Walmart in taking collecting all this data is not collecting the dollar amounts or the profit margin. What they're collecting is how much of this item are they selling and right. when. And basically what they're determining is what is the demand? And right. what do we need to do to meet the supply? Right, absolutely. Anything further, Aaron, before I continue? Um, I was just going to say that, like, it just it makes sense that they're doing this because it's efficient, and that's what we've been saying all along: is that it, this is the most efficient way to do it—to track all of this data and use it directly to influence manufacturing. 
So it it's a big part probably of why Walmart is so powerful and so um, dominant in the American economy or in the world economy. And um, it's just kind of sad, I guess, that they have all that dominance and they still are doing things like non-payment of overtime, non-payment of hours worked, and paying less than the minimum wage. And there, there's more it gets into later in the article. But just with all that power and all this efficiency that they are producing, they could do so many good things. But uh, that's not that's not the way the profit motive motivates a company to work. Right. Now, ironically, when they continue on the next page, um, they give even more information that moves in that direction. And, of course, you know, we're still going to want to comment on the, the actual point of the article, which is to point out that there's going to be this huge uh, walkout protest on Black Friday, which would be a huge kick in the groin to Walmart. Um, but, I mean, if it not you know, to mention all the kicks in the groin and the scratching and the punching and all that that takes place when those people crash through the doors of Walmart stores on Black Friday, but... Um, let's go ahead and read more. Once set in motion, the shift of power and initiative from manufacturer to retailer tended only to accelerate. The the more Walmart learned about the operations of its suppliers, the more it was able to compare one supplier to another to spot inefficiencies and demand fixes to zero in on profit centers inside its suppliers. As time went on, Walmart was able to dictate not only how its suppliers packaged and distributed their products, but what they manufactured, how they manufactured it, how much money they made on their businesses, and indeed whether they would remain in business at all. Walmart became not merely the market leader in many senses, it became the market itself. So this takes it even further into the direction of the fact that Walmart essentially took control of the resources of anybody who wants to be the, you know, one of their manufacturers, took control of their system of manufacturing and paid attention to all of the data that was given, and as a result, became one of the most efficient um, uh, distributors on the planet, so much that they can put other distributors out of business. Ironically, not through some rapid, you know, not rapid, um, you know, ram use of, well, I guess we'll go with this supplier this time and that supplier that time, by intelligently tabulating the resources used and the energy used to come up with the most efficient you know, possibility. And so as a result, you know, as ironic as it is, Walmart proves that you get you know, it because, you know, through, of course, they have the profit motive. Our motive would be to to take care of everybody, you know, and uh, adequately and equitably, you know, distribute the resources on the planet. But it proves that this is possible. So anyway, I'm going to read further. Rubbermaid and Newell, Kellogg's and Keebler, Kraft and Nabisco, and Procter and Gamble and Gillette are all mergers forced by Walmart's buying system. As Lynn notes, Walmart is so powerful that even many giant and long independent producer firms like Procter & Gamble and Un Un Unilever dare not question its dictates. The logistics revolution had, that has ripped through the American economy, deindustrializing the country and deflating wages, came through Walmart. This process brings low prices, but also has put the entire economy at risk with its lack of redundancy and concentration of key supply bottlenecks in an unstable in, in unstable areas. The company, not surprisingly, is also known for brutal tactics against workers. It is known for retaliating against employers who attempt to organize um, employees. Walmart employees often rely on food stamps and Medicaid because of insufficient wages and lack of adequate health care. 
In 2005, according to the St. Louis Federal Reserve President William Poole, Walmart observed among their own employees a reduction in health care utilization, that is, fewer doctor's visits, but increase in emergency room visits. Apparently, employees are struggling, some to make co-payments, that kind of thing, again emphasizing the stress that exists in many lower-income households. It is also a huge political force. The company successfully fought off a massive gender discrimination suit struck down by the Supreme Court on technical grounds. New York public advocate Bill de Blasio, if I'm saying that correct, unveiled the site's degrees of Walmart. After the company was caught in a bribery scandal in Mexico, where it is the largest private employer, deflating work wages and weakening political constraints are core to the Walmart model, as important as pulling in products from China and forcing a restructuring of the American supply chain. Beyond that, Walmart has become a significant contributor to macroeconomic forecasting. I went through the transcripts of Federal Open Market Committee meetings for the Federal Reserve from 1999 to 2006, searching for Walmart. The FOMC is the key economic policy-making body in the central bank, making decisions about interest rates based on the discussions among the various officials at the Fed. Walmart was mentioned at every single meeting in 2006, multiple times. In 2005, the company was mentioned at every meeting but one. In fact, Walmart has been a constant topic of discussion at the FMOC from 2001 onward because of its scale and remarkable amount of data the company actually has more granular data about the economy than most macroeconomic forecasters. As Fed, as Fed Board Governor Randall Krosner said in June 2006 meeting, Walmart officials effectively know what retail, retail sales are before numbers are reported because their sales are so highly correlated with overall retail sales. But I'll point out that this is something that is also supposedly impossible according to the economic calculation problem. Um, Continuing, starting in 2001, the FMOC began relying more and more on Walmart in its discussions. In 2002, the company was mentioned in the context of a longshoreman strike and inflation. In May 2003, the federal governors, governors looked to, to Walmart to see if there was a sales bounce due to the end of the war in Iraq. There wasn't. In June, the FMOC began to gauge the macroeconomic impact of inequality using advice from Walmart. Walmart officials were not optimistic that Bush's second tax cuts would help sales, because tax cuts went mostly to the wealthy, uh, people who didn't shop there. In 2004, Walmart began warning of high energy prices and the consumers were liquidity constrained. The company saw in its sales figures that consumers were increasingly living paycheck to paycheck. In 2005, the company began worrying about a strange situation. The consumer was tapped out, but sales were up and Walmart couldn't figure out why. This is a hint of the credit bubble, but the Fed ignored it. The company, at this point, isn't just a key purveyor of lower labor standards and a globalized and concentrated supply chain. It is the key tell for policymakers. Walmart data was used by the Federal Reserve's FMOC to understand labor markets, inequality, health care costs, supply chains, and inflation. As the global recession began to come into view, one FMOC member noted, it's certainly disconcerting to hear that one of the largest private institutions in the world, Walmart, is missing its growth targets fairly significantly. It is as if the new maxim become, what's good for Walmart is good for America. In the 1950s, the so-called Treaty of Detroit, an agreement between government, business, and labor, forever increasing wages at automakers, set the tone for the next 20 years of the political economy. From the 1970s onward, the new social contract was increasingly set, not by, just by companies but, Wal but like Walmart, but by Walmart itself. 
As a new social contract, let's call it the Treaty of Walmart, emerged as a deal cut between the U.S. government, the Chinese government, and global trading corporations, American society began to reflect a race to the bottom. This strike is thus worth watching. If Walmart loses some pricing pressure because of tactics that impact company supply chain or ability to sell, we'll be in uncharted territory. So that concludes the article. Um, again, you know, looking at this, it's interesting the kind of information that was garnered that obviously was not intention, you know, intended when I, when I picked the article. But, uh, you know, looking, of course, at the ability for a strike to happen, I don't know if you've seen Walmart, the high cost of low prices, but these people literally have like a corporate KGB force that comes in the minute they think somebody might unionize. Um, and the fact that they do occasionally have to buckle to pressure, you know, proves furthermore that, you know, all the activism we've done to bring attention to things like Walmart is working. Um, I still don't think it's working enough, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, eventually through enough pressure and enough, like, you know, work on the part of activists, we can make some real changes in these policies. But let me open the floor. Aaron, what do you think? Um, well, I guess it just... It, it, if it works, or even if it doesn't work, it does kind of show that the kind of power that ordinary people can have in large groups, they organize and push for something like this. You know, even though it's relatively small win, um, I mean, it, not relatively small, but it'll only benefit you know, people who work at Walmart. But uh, it's a good morale booster for, um, you know, people in a time where you can often feel powerless. Right. Frank? Yeah, I think I think that's it, it illustrates one of the things that a lot of people worry about when it comes to um, generating a global revolution and moving towards a uh, a resource-based economy or a post-scarcity economy. In that, there's this general fear that the governments will attempt to squash any uprising and and so we see that same kind of thing happening at Walmart, where where workers are trying to fight for worker rights, you know, trying to unionize and organize, and, and they're being squashed by something to the effect of a KGB, as you were pointing out. All right. Well, um, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. So let me say, um, first of all, that I hope that people have learned something from this. And they're paying close attention to what's coming next because one of the reasons we're in this situation that we're in, and I talked to a union guy about this, was that the outsourcing thing pretty much eliminates anything in regards to being a, you know, a union. And in a lot of these other countries, uh, like I remember watching one place, like they, you know, the, this one South American country where they had a factory, you know, they were interviewing this lady. She said, yeah, we unionized and we struck, you know, like we had a strike just like they suggested. So they just hired thugs to come shoot us and beat us up and intimidate us. You know, it it's not like trying to organize the you know the unions like here in the United States where you can't really get away with that sort of thing. Um, although it was like that you know, like way long ago, like back in the 1920s and before, you know the the unions were frequently in situations where they were defending themselves from being killed. You know, it's. Uh, the different barons that were going on, like the, the railroad barons, the oil barons, and all that, you know, if you opposed them extensively, then you were in the line of fire. So um, it will take, I think, a long time for any sort of world labor mo mu movement to get together and 
honestly, I think that the 1% has figured out that the days of them being able to, you know, or them needing to negotiate are over. And I think that only so long as they haven't mastered automation entirely will we even have a labor issue. Because I don't think these people are really worried too much about employing us. They exchange a lot of money amongst, you know, amongst themselves, and we are essentially the biggest draw on their profits. You know, how dare us want to have a decent life for making them rich. So, in any case, um, I am going to switch gears to another issue. Uh, this is actually about stuff going on in public schools. Let me check... Um, by the way, folks, anybody who's in the chat room, if you can comment on the sound quality and tell me whether or not it's coming through okay, um, and other reports earlier, um, I am monitoring the chat room. Please consider, you know, like if it's clipping a lot or whatever, as it was in the last episode, let me know because I don't want to make these guys sit here through another hour episode just to find out that the, the sound was terrible. <laughs> so, in any case... Um, Kids tagged with RFID chips, the creepy new technology schools use to track everything kids do and the profit motive behind it. Now, let's start over here from the beginning because I actually was in the middle of this one. So here we go. October 5th, 2012, the digital tracking and surveillance of school-aged kids has been growing much attention has been given to the phenomenon of corporate tracking of kids' online activities, activities that violate the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The law, originally adopted in 1998, requires websites aimed at kids to get parental consent before gathering information about those users who are under 13 years. Many companies, including a Disney subsidiary, have violated it. Corporate marketing interests, most notably Facebook, are fighting proposals, uh, pr proposed revisions to COPPA. A second front in the tracking of young people has gotten far less attention. Schools across the country are adopting a variety of different tools to monitor students both in school and outside the school. Sorry about the brief little pause there. Uh, among these tools are RFID, radio frequency identification tags, embedded into school ID cards, GPS tracking software and computers, and even CCTV video camera systems. According to school authorities, these tools are being adopted not to simply increase security, but to prevent truancy, cut down theft, and even improve students' eating habits. The RFID tag system, properly, properly, oh, I'm sorry, popularly known as Tag and Track, is being sold to school systems across the country by a variety of vendors, including AIM Truancy Solutions, ID Card Group, and Data Card. In general, these systems consist of a school photo ID card affixed to a lanyard, which is worn around the student's neck. The ID has an RFID chip embedded in it. The tag includes a digit number assigned to each student. As a student enters the school or passes beneath a doorway equipped with an RFID reader, the tag ID is read, recorded, and sent to a servant in the school's administrative office. The captured data not only provides an attendance list sent to the teacher's PDA, but tracks the students' movement throughout the day. Students and parents in San Antonio, Texas, are up in arms over a decision by Northside Independent School District to require students at two local schools to wear RFID-equipped name tags as part of the Student Locator Project. The two schools, John Lay High School and Anson Jones Middle School, to pinpoint student locations both at school and outside its premises. 
In addition, students are required to use the microchip ID when checking out school library books, registering for classes, and paying for school lunches. Pat Gonzalez, a school district spokesman, said, We want to harness the power of technology to make schools safer, know where students are all the time in a school, and increase revenues. And increase revenues. One student, Andrea Hernandez, said the badge makes me comfortable. It's an invasion of my privacy. Local Antonio news media make clear that something other than school security is at stake. The local school district loses $175,000 a day because of later absent students, and RFID tracking provides a means to improve attendance reporting. San Antonio is taking its cue from the Houston, Texas school district. It began using RFID chips to monitor students on 13 campuses in 2004. Houston Spring Independent School District gave 28,000 students RFID badges to record when they get on and off school buses. The police and school administrators provided the badges to ostensibly prevent truancy and child abductions. In 2010, the school reported... RFID readers situated throughout each campus are used to identify where the students are located in the building, which can be used to verify the student's attendance for ADA funding and course credit purposes. Student tracking has reportedly brought them hundreds of thousands of extra dollars. In Austin, Texas, some 1,700 students in eight high schools with parental permission are being outfitted with GPS devices to help cut truancy rates. According to a local news report, the program is being run by a Dallas-based AIM Truancy Solutions that boasts that its system increases student attendance by around 12%. The increasing use of student monitoring is not limited to Texas. The AIM Truancy Solutions GPS tracking program has been adopted in Baltimore, um, Minnesota, and is now being tested by the Anaheim, California Union High School District. In Anaheim, about seven. About 75 7th and 8th graders from Dale and South Junior High Schools are taking part in the pilot program. Students with four or more unexcused absences have volunteered to carry a handheld GPS device. The participation in the program will enable the students to avoid being prosecuted and a potential stay in juvenile hall. So basically like putting a tether on your kid. Each school day, the delinquent students get an automated wake-up phone call reminding them that they need to get to school on time. In addition, five times a day they are required to enter a code that tracks their location as they leave for school, when they arrive at school, at lunchtime, when they leave school, and at 8 p.m. What the hell would they need to know what they're doing at 8 p.m. for? These students are also assigned an adult coach who calls them at least three times a week to see how they are doing and to help them find effective ways to make sure they get to school. Can you imagine what this would be like in a privatized school system? I I'm going to pause here for a second. Just ask you guys because there's a lot to take in. Um, Frank, what do you think about this? Oh my goodness! I, I <laughs> was going to use some language there, but I understand that you have. Uh, this is kind of a family-oriented show. <laughs> my God, I could have gotten away with it. In any case, uh, damn guys, really? Uh, can you say police thing? Sure. You know, this is what I. This is one of the things that we've been talking about is that we're moving toward a dictatorial police state, and, and that they're initiating this with our children is just one sure sign of it. Well, and it, it basically helps to condition them and get them accustomed to the ideas so that if they take further actions like that in the future, that it'll be along the same line. Um, exactly. Aaron. 
Um, I, I, I just I see this going to be very counterproductive. It's not going to make students, even if they're at school, I don't think it's going to be. It's not going to increase the effectiveness of their learning in any way. If you're being forced to be there, like the more you force someone to do something, the less they're going to want to do it. And I mean, the 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 less effective it's going to be. It's besides just like what a horrible like human rights violation it is. I don't really see it producing any positive results. I mean, other than be extra money for schools, apparently. Right. I don't, I, I don't understand how that works. So, um, they, well, it's a it's a tax thing. Um, these these schools get money based on school attendance, which is why school oh, attendance okay. is so important to them. Right. I've got this really radical idea, and I don't know if I'm crazy. You want to increase attendance at the schools? How about making school worth the candy? Like making it interesting or fun, or interesting, more fun, more entertaining to actually want to learn something new. But that be you know taking responsibility for the problem. <laughs> Yeah. yeah it, it, government doesn't do that. What are you talking about? Um, it's it's interesting, actually. There's been um, different scans, for example, here in Michigan about the different stuff that school boards do with the money that they get. And, of course, it's money that they're getting based on this issue of, you know, um, how long, you know, people are in their classes. So... Inevitably, anytime you add money to anything, as we've talked about previously, you know, you're, it, it turns things to crap. But that's just the way it is, you know. So, essentially, you know, we're just looking at another example of the profit motive. And this is one of the reasons why the idea, the the free market idea of just privatizing all school systems, kind of terrifies me. Um, so, in any case, I'm going to move on a little further into the article, but. Uh, See, here we go. Okay. Each school day, the delinquent students get an. Okay, we needed that. Like San Antonio, Anaheim schools lose about $35 per day for each absent student. Local school officials believe the program can pay for itself as more students attend classes. The Palace Heights School District in Illinois is attaching GPS locators to students' backpacks to locate kids in seconds, both in and out of school. The electronic reader registers date, time, and location of kids. Administrators justify the tracking and surveillance of students outside of the classroom as for their safety. A very different monitoring effort is underway on Long Island, uh, New York, in an effort to fight obesity. Selected Bay Shore students designated overweight or obese are being equipped with a wristwatch-like devices that count heartbeats, detect motion, and even, tra- and even track students' sleeping habits. What the frack? Similar programs are underway in schools in St. Louis, Missouri, and South Orange, Jersey. In 2010, the Contra Costa County—wow, that's a tongue twister—Contra Costa County School District received a $50,000 grant to put RFID tags into basketball jerseys that students are supposed to wear while at school. The bulk of the grant went towards setting up sensors around the school to read the tags and computer systems to actually monitor where each student is. The program tracks preschool children. The Electronic Freedom Foundation warns an RFID chip allows far more than the minimal record keeping. Instead, it provides for the potential for nearly constant monitoring of a child's physical location. The consequences of such tracking are serious. 
If RFID records show a child moving around a lot, she could be tagged as could she be tagged as hyperactive? If he doesn't move around a lot, could he get a reputation for laziness? Not all student tracking programs work out as planned. In 2005, the Britain Elementary School in Sutter, California, abandoned an experimental tag and track program. Like similar programs, the RFID tracking used mandatory ID badges to track children's movements in and around the school. Promoted by a local vendor, Incom, the school's board pulled the plug after the EFF and ACLU raised concerns that the program breached children's right to privacy. So, getting a comment here. Oh, here we go. Sorry about that, folks. Um, in 2010, a far greater or grave incident of illegal monitoring was revealed in Pennsylvania's Lower Marion School District. Blake Robbins, a Harrington High School sophomore, reported that a school official confronted him for engaging in improper behavior at his home. As the story unravels, it was revealed that the laptops the school issued to the high school students came equipped with special software that enabled school administrators to spy on students and even their families in their homes. And that'll be the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, school administrators argued that software was installed to find lost or stolen computers. More than they admitted that they never told students or their parents about the remote access feature. Faced with a class action lawsuit from Robbins and 1,800 students, the school district settled at an estimated $600,000. Wow, I wonder if that extra revenue is worth it. Um, cameras are gaining an increasing presence in schools as part of student surveillance efforts. Popularly known as closed-circuit television, digital video camera systems are being placed throughout schools as well as outside buildings and even on school buses. In the school, cameras are located in cafeterias, hallways, gymnasiums, and in other interior spaces, including classrooms. The rationale for camera surveillance is the ostensible need for an increase in security, whether involving a Columbine-like threat, fistfights, and or property theft. These systems are intended to monitor the theft of an iPad from a locker, uh, um, a fight in the parking lot after a school dismissal, an argument between a student and a staff member. Two school CCTV system providers are Camera Watch and Axis Communications. <laughs> Axis, A-X-I-S, that's actually kind of funny. Uh, the data on school violence is confusing. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, in 1993, there were 42 homicides by students and 13 serious violent crimes Rape, sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assault per 1,000 students at primary and secondary schools by 2010. The latest figures available, those numbers have decreased by two, to two homicides and four violent crimes per 1,000 students. Now, I want to stop there for just a second here. Um, now, this is an interesting point. Okay, I went to school in a very violent area, okay, and... There were always like instances of violence. We actually like had the school shut down once because we got a anonymous tip there was going to be a gang fight in the um, parking lot, and they actually went to the car that you know that the tip had been about, and they opened the trunk to find that there was multiple like automatic weapons in the trunk. So people were going to die, you know. Um, so I mean, we have to ask ourselves this question, and I bring this for the sake of discussion. You know, when it comes to the cameras, at least, you know, do you think that there's a, you know, is there a benefit that outweighs any, like, lack of privacy for, you know, for these kinds of things? Because when you think about it, you know, cameras have been used not only to track, like, you know, the impropriety of, you know, like, alleged impropriety of, of students or people or citizens, but also, like, when police get out of line, 
you know, uh, I mean, obviously the Rodney King thing was an excellent example of that. You know, so I just want to hear you guys' thoughts on how you feel about the camera issue. I'll start with you, Aaron. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that that is a tough one because part of me really likes the idea of things being open and transparent, um, especially when you're dealing with authority figures and, um, like you mentioned, the police. But at the same time, it's like the at school, the feeling say, of being watched all the time, or um, it's it's very it's it's uh, yeah, it's tough because it's very oppressive, but it could also be very um, liberating, and it can also be useful for um, for everyone to just have things recorded thing you, you know what i mean like um, right. you can always go back to it and see what happened i yeah i don't know it's a interesting thing what do you think frank well i i know uh relatively certainly been a lot of areas where police cars are uh are there uh, which might help to protect the police officer and could potentially uh, damage a police officer for uh, bad action. Uh, in a lot of those places, there actually initiated laws um, and policies that that footage cannot be compelled to use against a police officer in the commission of his duty. General consensus among the, uh, the people that I've spoken with is that they agree with that notion because police officers shouldn't face a criminal lawsuit in the line of community duties. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute. Right. Does this really make sense to you? I mean, if an officer who is supposed to be upholding the law has to break the law in the commission of that, do we really need him there? <laughs> well, and it's the interesting thing about the filming and all that, it comes up in the Occupy movement quite a bit because there are police who are obviously very comfortable with being on camera. And it, it does kind of lend to a certain amount of transparency. That, you know, what that actually calls to mind to me is a little while ago, I remember reading from an article about uh, this poor kid. He was in some way mentally disabled. And he had a lot of anxiety, like whenever, because his parents were divorced, which only made it worse. Um, and he had a lot of anxiety about whether or not he was going to see his other parent again any time they had an exchange. And so these teachers kept telling him stuff they knew would terrify him just because they thought it was funny. And the only reason that we have anything on this, because of course, Kid's not in a position to give anything, you know, regarding testimony. He's he's you know mentally and emotionally disabled, so he had to send his son to school with a wire, you know, to get recordings of these teachers taunting this child, you know, intentionally freaking him out and making him cry, and that's the kind of stuff that you know it's it it definitely is a double sword. You know, but I had to feel for this guy because if somebody did that to my kid, you know, I've already dealt with this with my own kids because, you know, when you're expecting even just normal kids, you're dealing with kids who are really young, uh, 
trying to get a straight story out of them is really difficult. You know, especially if they if they've done anything wrong in this situation, it's really hard to get that straight. You know, but at the same time, you're trusting your kids to these adults that are supposedly going to take care of them or have their best interests in mind. You know, and then it ends up being the the authoritative adult's word against the child. You know, and I don't know. It's it's situations like that where you know you, you it does kind of put you in a question mark position. Now, the stuff that was going on earlier, I actually remember reading an article. This is kind of takes us to a different situation um, about this. You know, in, improper behavior going on in someone's home because somehow they were monitoring it through uh, the the kid's laptop that he got from school. I read about that earlier, and I guess what it was is they were able to like turn the webcam on this computer whenever they wanted without the child's knowledge. I cannot imagine for the life of me what the benefit there ever would be, you know, for that, you know, when the kid's not even in the class. That's like definitely like a big brother, I'm going to reach all the way into your freaking house, you know, and you know, I, I can't think of anything resembling a good excuse for that. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, no, definitely not. I mean, uh, at the school, you can kind of see reasons for it, and uh, but no, I mean that's just creepy. It's, um, I don't know. I, I think with the having cameras in the school and stuff, it's kind of important that access to that information would need to be available to students and to students' parents and um in the event that something did happen, you know, because if they don't have access to that, to those recordings, to the information, like maybe, maybe not just un, unrestricted access, in the event that they requested it or something happened, you know, it has to be kind of democratized because the, the, otherwise it's a complete imbalance if the school officials and the authorities have all this ability to record, but when they do something wrong, they, they're, they're the ones holding the recording, so they don't necessarily have to let those out. Um. Yeah, the I'm just it, people it, should yeah. have control over the info that relates to them. I guess or no, that's have true. Some control over it that we should have every bit of access to it. Like, you know, I've had that also. Like, you know, we have the Freedom of Information Act that you can get documents from uh, different state officials when necessary. Like, I've had to do it several times in court cases. You know, to get copies of police reports and things like that, incident reports. You know, to be you know to be used later in court, and you have to spell fill out like a special you know paper for that. You can do Freedom of Information Act sometimes for video, you know things like that. Um, of course, you never know like you're gonna get you know and how much of it might have been edited or whatever. But there's supposed to be penalties in place for somebody not responding to a Freedom of Information Act with all of the information they had. But but still, I definitely see what you're saying in regards to people should have control over the information that re- that you know that involves them, and that's something we've talked about a lot. You know, with the advent of the internet in particular, is it's so easy for people to do, just take your your name and your face and just put it all over the place and give it to people who maybe you totally want to have it. So, um, if uh, any closing statements, Frank, before I on? Yeah, one of the things that I want to point out with all these cameras and, and recording devices and monitoring uh, systems all over the place, what we really end up with is a system of micromanagement where instead of, of simply building a system that uh, that is self-supportive, 
we're building a system that requires multi, uh, multiple entities micromanaging every last little second and every little um, tuck away place of people's lives, right? And, and or every aspect of, of people's lives, and and I I'm a firm opinion that if we actually developed our society properly, we wouldn't need all of that. But because we're in this paradigm that we are, we're, we're, we've created a monster of a system that uh, that's just going to lead to further and further egress into this system, into this uh, police state. Watch, watch your neighbors, you know. Be sure to report your neighbors whenever they uh, look at you sideways. Right. So, anyway, that being said, um, I want to move on to a different topic now. Uh, we touched a little bit on this in the last episode that, unfortunately, I had to delete, but there was a a mini-documentary made in Russia that was being asked around about what was going on in Syria. Uh, it was linked not long ago on that guy's global Facebook group. Um, there were people that were arguing back and forth about whether or not there was, you know, whether or not there were lies or spin or whatever. Um, what I tend to tell people the same thing I said about some of Alex Jones's work is, you know, you can ignore Alex Jones because obviously got an agenda of his own. Just tune him out, like. But for some of his stuff, like the the videos in particular that he took of the the police state that was going on, like where they're training the the current soldiers to you know, be ready and psychologically willing to throw us into camps and stuff, you know, was invaluable footage. Even if you, like, you know, muted Alex Jones and didn't listen to a word he said, you don't need his commentary to figure out what attention, 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 uh, American soldiers are here to help, we will not tolerate civil disobedience is supposed to mean. You don't need Alex's interpretation to figure that out. And the footage that was in this film about Syria uh, was very telling, honestly. I mean, regardless of any spin that they put on it, it gives you an idea of what was physically going on there and just how bad the situation is. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read from this article. This is once again on Alternet, um, and it's by Samir Arabi. Uh, the Attack Syria Coalition, brought to you by the same people who gave us the Iraq debacle, died in the wool neoconservatives have found new energy calling for regime change in Syria. By the way, real quickly, neoconservative is a term that you should all become very familiar with. And if you want to learn about it other than the stuff that's in this article, make sure that you check out the film The Project for the New American Century. It's the first film in my must-see TV list that you can watch for free on my website. So, continuing. Uh, October 15, 2012, in late September 2001, less than 10 days after the 9-11 attack, the Project for the New American Century, a group of prominent neoconservatives, liberal interventionists, and members of the religious right who advocate a host of U.S.-led regime changes in the Middle East, drafted a letter to President George W. Bush commending his promise to go after terrorism wherever we find in the world and offering a number of recommendations for the remainder of the president's term. The steps outlined in the letter were, pre were prescient in predicting Bush's foreign policy priorities, and to a lesser extent, the priorities of his successor, Barack Obama. In addition to their advocacy positions in Iraq, evade immediately, Israel's support unconditionally, military spending, no hesitation in resting whatever funds for defense are needed, 
The signatory urged a tougher stance on Hezbollah, as well as the state sponsors of Damascus and Tehran. In the letter, they argued that any war against terrorism must target Hezbollah, and urged the administration to demand that Iran and Syria immediately cease all military, financial, and political support for Hezbollah and its operations. Should Iran and Syria refuse to comply, the administration should consider appropriate measures of retaliation against these known state sponsors of terrorism. Today, as Syria remains mired in a seemingly limitless spiral of violence, the question arises, what has become of this attack, um, attack Syria coalition, and what, if anything, has changed in its view of the U.S. intervention? Target Syria. Because of the many ties between the PNAC and the Bush administration, it came as little surprise to close observers that the Bush administration eventually followed much of the letter's advice with respect to Syria. After supporting the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006, the Bush administration capitalized on the assassination of Lebanese Prime Minister Fik al-Riri to galvanize political opposition to Hezbollah, Syria by proxy, culminating in the withdrawal of Syrian troops from the Lebanese territory. Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, produced a roadmap for Syria, proposing a number of military options for weakened Syrian regime, including docking an aircraft carrier with Syrian territorial waters, or within Syrian territorial waters, and using proxies to undermine Syrian intelligence agents inside Lebanon. Meanwhile, Secretary Colin Powell presented Syrian President Bashar al-Assad with a long list of U.S. demands, including Syria cooperate in the war on terrorism in Iraq, and indented support for Hamas, Hezbollah, and Islamic Jihad in withdrawals from Lebanon. The administration's pressure was highly effective in the heady days after Hariri's assassination, and the Assad regime scrambled to provide the Bush administration with an acceptable counteroffer to prevent a second regime change in the region. Uh, Bajat Salin, the chief of the interbranch of Syria's general intelligence directorate, took the unprecedented step of publishing an article in Lebanese daily Al-Safir, where he outlined a course of action that could be acceptable to the Syrian regime. In the article, he implied that Assad would be willing to reign in Hezbollah, control Palestinian armed groups, and salify extremists in Lebanon, and secure Iraq's long border with Syria in order to guarantee the regime's preservation. The offer fell on deaf ears. Fresh off the invasion of Iraq, U.S. neoconservatives and their allies were optimistic that strong and uncompromising force and unconditional support for the enemies their enemies would be sufficient to reshape the regional order. There's no reason to think engagement with Syria bring about any change, said the letter's signatory Richard Pearl in 2006. He argued that Syria has never been weaker and should take advantage of that. Now, I can give like out the link to the rest of the article, but I, you know, I don't want to spend the whole time reading it. But one of the things that we said on the last show, and I had storm clouds gathering on to talk about that as one. Well. Fortunate again that I had to delete it, but I've been watching Fox News every now and then just to kind of get a, a finger on the pulse for the current propaganda that's being thrown around. And they're really emphasizing a lot, for example, on this Al-Qaeda connection supposedly to the, you know, to the angry mob that came in and killed the U.S. ambassador recently. And I watched it closely, and it occurred to me, I'm like, isn't it a little odd or in some way strangely coincidental that all of the people that the neoconservatives, like all of the countries that they've wanted to deal with, Syria, Iraq, Iran, you know, Egypt, and pretty much the entire Middle East is bent on killing each other in civil wars. Is that an accident? You know, that all of a sudden, recently, all of these people that we have said that we want to invade are now engaged in civil war. Now, once again, 
this is not like something I can back up with facts as far as any involvement in the United States. Although that Russian documentary that I think was linked earlier or talked about earlier did say because they talked to several of the people in Syria, you know, that some mercenaries were paid for by you know, by the United States and for Britain. Um, so the question is. Um, do you think personally, and once again, this is just opinion, um, we are differentiating here between opinion and, and what we can prove to be facts, but my instincts tell me that it's very likely, at least in my opinion, that these fights that are going on in these countries are probably in some ways manipulated by the you know the economic hitmen kind of personalities who work for the government. Um, it all actually kind of reminds me a lot of... Uh, what we did in Iran when we wanted, you know, the uh, we wanted to reinstall the Shah so that he would give us access to the resources. You know, we sent CIA to do a little tinkering here and there to get some people fitting. You know, and it's also a precursor to most invasion strategies is to try to start internal squabbles in a place before you before you come in. And so I, then that's that's the main point that I would ask you guys. What do you think? You know, as far as your foreign policy radar, so to speak, when I talk about the possibility that what's going on in Syria, Iraq, Egypt, uh, you know, and even some of these other countries that are in unrest that aren't in the Middle East, you know, do you think that it's possible that this could be part of some kind of engineered agenda? Aaron? Um, I mean, I've, I haven't really been following this story much. I think it's definitely possible, just based on what we know um, America and uh, other powerful Western nations have done in the past, these kind of covert operations. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's all, like you said, speculation. It, it is possible. Though. I, um, I've i seen a lot. We uh, In Vancouver here, we set up our Zeitgeist booth downtown at the Vancouver Art Gallery every other Saturday. And uh, during the summer, I, uh, more than once, I think three or f two or three times, uh, there were Syrian protesters there who um, were uh, just holding rallies to free Syria, freedom for Syria. And um, just it struck me and the others in the group at ha what a great distraction it is to have people fighting for freedom for Syria, you know, not for the world or for the you know peace between all nations just them for Syria. It's a very you know, specific um, direction of people energies, directing people to specific issues and distracting it from a more larger picture, global picture of the issues. Right. What do you think, Frank? I think uh, Aaron has a very good strong point that uh, a lot of times what you run into when it comes to uh, here we have the option. We have we we find ourselves at a crossroads, and, and we're still here at this crossroads, despite the fact that the economy seems to be getting better, and it seems that it may be doing so even on a global scale. But is it certainly at least doing so here in the United States? And, and and yet still we find ourselves at this crossroads where we have an opportunity that hasn't really presented itself before, where we can alter the entire world and make the entire world free and and not worry about or get distracted by uh, such trivial issues as one given uh, nation or state 
or even uh, minority group of people. I think that one of the reasons that I pointed this out was, to me anyway, it looked like a textbook example of how the the 1%, not just in the United States, because this was pointed out, you know, Britain's got their hands in this situation, you know, as do some of the other big countries that kind of been driving this whole neoconservative agenda, um, that it's essentially in their best interest to get us sensitized to these ideas that you know, we go to other countries to cause these these issues that it's essentially you know we're doing it supposedly to save them or whatever um you know and when it came to places like libya uh syria recently you know it's just the way these regimes are working and the way that they're being toppled the reason i still think it's relevant news even people who have a global concern is that i don't think that these tactics are going to stop in the middle east i think we're probably going to be seeing that this is going to be how the elite always justify military action you know, find some way to call the people in question some kind of weird, you know, uh, extremists, and then uh, allow that to be the the smokescreen that you throw up whenever it is you just show up there to you know to take whatever you want from them. You know, that's another thing we talked about in the the last show that sadly we had to delete, but uh, we talked about the fact that uh, the religious fundamentalism makes an excellent excuse to go into these countries and go after these people, and that essentially. Ironically, all of these things that we're doing supposedly to fight the quote-unquote war on terror are doing an excellent job of, you know, motivating people who are then, of course, like, you know, if they're holding the, you know, their their dead son or whatever in their arm, and they're begging and looking for answers, you know, people frequently turn to religion in situations like that. And if angry, well, and they find themselves some angry clerics or religious figures, you know, at that point who will provide them with the answers. Yeah, here you are. You're angry. That's cool. I'm angry too. Here's how you can voice that anger and still go to heaven. <laughs> you know, I've pointed out that a lot of emphasis is being put, especially in Fox News, about how Islam is evil and all that. But it's not unique to Islam. You know, it's it's really no different than the Crusades. The Crusades were about taking money and resources away from, you know, Middle Eastern people um, and the excuse was God wills it. It's religion. You know, we need to get these these sacred holy places away from those evil heathens. You know, see if Jesus, the character, would ever advocate going to war to secure like the place of his birth or whatever. Um, you know, so just something to consider, especially because I think that you're looking at essentially getting a view of what the one percent or the elite or whatever when I call them the New World Order, whatever the current name for them is. Um, you know that their their playbook has kind of opened up on the table, and if you pay close attention, you know you'll be able to you know kind of translate the language that they're speaking to us in that the way they find ways to make people okay with the different agendas that they push. So anyway, um, I want to thank you guys for being on tonight, and um, that's going to basically conclude this broadcast. Unless anybody had any um, passing comments about what we've talked about today. Uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, having me on. I, I'd like to have an opportunity, if I may, to let people know about the, the, the show, the side show. Go right ahead. Thank you. Um, we are going back into production uh, coming up soon. We've had a rather protracted uh, hiatus because of computer problems on my end. But we are also going to be changing the format of the show ever so slightly. Uh, we're going to be moving from, for one thing, from uh, uh, what was it we were using? Blaster before. 
we're going to be moving from that to uh, Google Plus. So uh, we'll be able to take video call-in and audio call-in, and we'll be able to have some uh, guests from the audience as well as uh, the guests that we have on. So be sure to look out for us. We'll be starting production within the next couple weeks, and uh, hope to see you all at the sideshow. Aaron, are you working on any current projects? Um, yeah, I um I've actually haven't really done much for almost a year now. I'm kinda of taking time off from doing but I I'm working on a video. It's almost done. I've been slowly, slowly plugging away at it. And I'm also planning on starting a podcast of my own. Maybe within the next month or so I'm planning on launching that. I don't really have a title or anything I can direct people to for that yet, but um yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Well, that's great. Uh, thank you for having me on, by the no, way. No, for sure. And you can get around to doing that, Aaron. Let me know, because I, I want to promote the hell out of that. I would like there to be more podcasts. I'd like there to be more, you know, and also that I can listen to, so I don't always sit again on the microphone, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, the alternative media is extremely important, especially in this day and age, so... Um, now, in regards to the uh, previous statement, yeah, I do tend to avoid profanity on the show. Um, I do want to close this show, however, with something that's got profanity in it. Um, but it's from a former guest of mine that many of you might remember. Uh, she's a guest of mine on the TZM Global Show. Um, and uh, she does this interesting song, and it involves an awful lot of the F words. For those of you who tune into V Radio and do so because you're used to having a no profanity show other than my George Harlan clips, you know, I kind of this is why I don't start the broadcast with it is obviously so I can, you know, warn people that you may not want to listen to this part of the broadcast. But before I get to that, um uh Aaron, one more thing. Um can you give the URL to your website. Oh, uh yeah, it's just uh, theinfiniteyes.com and infinite doesn't have an e on it but uh it will work either way and frank that uh well right now and and in the past we've moved to uh, gbn live com. so uh we'll probably still air the show there uh at, at perhaps even in its live format we will also have our own uh, our own website, which I believe is uh, sideshowradio.com. All right, excellent. Now, um, to the listeners of V Radio, I want to thank everybody who's tuned tonight, and um, I'm going to try to do these shows as I said daily. Um, I'm slowly, you know, able to do more and more. I was planning on doing a show that didn't have anything to do with the previous show, and then I unfortunately had to delete it because of bad sound quality. Um, and once again, I want to remind you guys, if there's any articles or, you know, current events that you think deserve attention on V Radio for the daily news shows, let me know. I will also be doing occasional blogs of my own writing, and um, in addition to that, I will also have uh, more shows coming up in the future with um, different roundtables and such. And I just talked to my future co-host, um, and she will be back. She's just been really busy lately, and we're going to be doing some more structured, like, uh, shows with her so i wanted to you know that's summary for those of you who don't remember um and uh i'm gonna once again as i said you know kind of play out the show with um this katie goodman clip you guys can uh i re-uploaded that 
that same um, interview to the V Radio broadcast, so you can find it in our archives. Katie is a really awesome person. She's at the recent uh, festival, the media festival, and it was a great interview. And I guess for, apparently it got the the interview got more listens than most of the broadcasts usually do. It was like um, really high up there and listens for TZM, and I have a lot of listens for it here on V Radio too. So I think you guys will really like the interview. She's really funny, um, and when you uh, basically combine funny with activism, it's great. And the reason that I think people should listen to this song is, ironically, as much as it's just meant to be a joke, if you follow the direction that Katie goes with the song, um, it makes a lot of sense, and you can almost pick out different situations you've been in as an activist, or just as a person in general, like treating like the problems, the way that groups of people you know, approach problems is all covered in the song. So um, thanks again, folks. If this is the first time you've tuned into V Radio, please check my website, v or v radioorg There you can click on the archives and find more shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, scientists, politicians, good ones, um, lots of different personalities who have been on this show, uh, lots of great conversations that have been on this show. You can also click the Must See TV tab to find a list free documentaries that you can watch on the internet that I think are crucial to anybody who's socially conscious. Lots of great information in those documentaries. People frequently ask me, you know, hey, you know, V, where'd you learn all this stuff? Well, it's it's generally just by being a, a dedicated fan of documentaries. I will point out that, you know, you should still do independent verification and research of anything you see in a documentary. You know, be wary of any propaganda techniques that might be being used you know, and take it as a learning experience no matter what. I had some great interviews recently with some documentary filmmakers, and I'm still actually going to be working on the troll documentary with Aaron. Um, I don't know when the time's going to come together for that. Like I said, every time I think I've envisioned how I want that to go, I get new information that makes me want to take it in a different direction. So I'm probably just going to have to buckle down and just make myself do it. And if it comes down to it, then we'll just make a sequel or something later on down the road. So... Um, I'm going to go ahead and play this clip now. Thank you guys for tuning in today. There's never been a time There's never been a time There's never been a time as fucked up as I didn't fuck it up. You probably didn't fuck it up. But they, whoever they are, they fucked it up. I can't unfuck it up. You probably can't unfuck it up. And if we're counting on them not to unfuck it up, then we're all fucked. Okay, now here's where you come in, you don't 
don't have to sing, just turn to the person next to you and ask them nicely. Did you fuck it up? Go on, ask them. How about you? Did you fuck it up? Now sit back and look at them and say, because you look like someone who could have fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. Now let's pick ourselves up off the floor and create a tone of camaraderie and ask could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy? You can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up. Then lose the righteous asshole attitude and take a breath and say, because I'm willing to take one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? Oh, that's better. Is this a letter? Yeah, I'm feeling the love. The problem is... Just can't help feeling bitter that it's fucked up to begin with. You just go round and round like this. Okay, back with me now. I didn't fuck it up. Let it out. Come on. You know you feel it. You probably didn't fuck it up. You don't have to believe it. Just go with it for now. But they, that's right, shift the blame. They fucked it up. Now it's fucked up. That's right. Okay. Yeah, you're clapping, but the problem is deep down inside you're feeling depressed and hopeless, right? You're just gonna change the world. What the hell happened? Okay, I got it. We're gonna come together for this one. I need your help. We're gonna fill this room up with love and inspiration and it won't last past the time you leave here tonight, but everybody on this side. Let's all unfuck it up. Okay, real loud and proud. Let's all unfuck it up. Now you gotta keep going without me when I leave you. Here we go. Let's all unfuck it up. Doesn't that feel good? Keep it rolling. Now over here, we have a special part. It's a little repetitive, but fuck, 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 it's fuck, fuck. It's fuck to fuck. It's fuck to fuck. Can you do that? It's fuck. It's fuck. Okay, middle, ready? I wanna be an unfucker. I wanna be an unfucker. That's right. It's fuck to fuck to fuck. It's fuck to fuck. Oh, yeah, really loud. One more time with all your heart now. 